The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. I want to turn our attention to the Gospel of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 1 through 6. Hear the reading of the Word of the Lord. Isaiah writes, beginning in verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. Um, We pray, Lord, that um, even now as we get into it by your Holy Spirit, uh, illuminate to our understanding and get this word into us. Give us eyes to see that wherein we fail. Jesus, the Son of God, on our behalf, mightily prevails, for we ask it in his precious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head, the Alpha and Omega. Amen. This is the Word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You know, we love uh, to sing when we worship. The songs we have just sung, we, we love Christmas songs. Um, we love the kind of songs and carols that we had just uh, a couple of nights ago at our, our Christmas Eve lessons and carols service that Nate and the team uh, led us through. Now, I love Christmas music. Now, mind you, I, I'm not as unreasonable as Pastor Scott, who begins listening to Christmas music all the way back in August. I'll, I'll admit, I, I think that's a little extra. Um, I, I wait until September, uh, September 1st, uh, to be precise. And seriously, for all of you judgy haters out there, y'all just need to back off of us. Um, I'll admit, and I think Scott would too, that part of it is just the fact that we love everything that comes with the Christmas season, the warmth, the nostalgia, all of those things. But, but I think um, it, it's more really, we, we love to marinate in the reality of the incarnation. In September 8, 1947, Time Magazine featured C.S. Lewis on its vaunted cover with the caption, and I quote, Oxford's C.S. Lewis, his heresy, Christianity. The feature article uh, described Lewis as one of a, quote, growing band of heretics among modern intellectuals, an intellectual who believes in God, not a mild and vague belief, for he accepts all the articles of the Christian faith. When his famous collection of essays, God in the Dock, uh, Lewis contends, one is very often asked at present whether we could not have a, a Christianity stripped or as people who ask it say, freed from its miraculous elements, a Christianity with the miraculous elements suppressed. 
Now, it seems to me that precisely the one religion in the world, or at least the only one I know, with which you could not do that is Christianity. And I, I love the, uh, the comprehensive intentionality uh, behind C.S. Lewis's thinking when he writes in his book, Miracles, in a chapter on the grand miracle. He says this, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this, just as every natural event is the manifestation at a particular place and moment of nature's total character. So every particular Christian miracle manifests at a particular place and moment the character and significance of the incarnation. There is no question in Christianity of arbitrary inferences just scattered about. It relates not a series of disconnected raids on nature, but the various steps of a strategically coherent invasion, an invasion which intends complete conquest and occupation. The fitness and therefore the credibility of the particular miracles depends on their relation to the grand miracle. All discussion of them in isolation from it is futile. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, but he goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with him. In other words, uh, C.S. Lewis is saying that Christians actually believe that God became man. And this is the grand miracle precisely because it assumes everything else about the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus. I don't know about you, but, but every year at, at Christmas, I start thinking about Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And then every year at Good Friday and Easter, I, I start thinking about Advent, and that's because the cradle and the cross cannot be understood one apart from the other. And I, I don't know what your favorite Christmas song is. My wife loves uh, Bing Crosby's version of Oh Holy Night. And, and there's a reason that we sing with Bing Crosby, the thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. The reason the prospect of hope thrills is because weariness is a reality, 2020. If you know, you know. Uh, for many of us, if we're honest, maybe it hasn't totally felt like Christmas this year. Strange year, strange Christmas season. On Christmas morning, uh, just yesterday, it, it dawned on me that 2020 apparently had time to make the world seem a little wearier yet. We were opening presents with Bing, singing, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth on a Bose speaker uh, in the kitchen while watching live up to the minute coverage on the TV of the Christmas morning bombing um, downtown in, in our beloved city here in Nashville. And who wants to open gifts when such rampant evil, when, when the fallout of the fall is on display from our city for the whole watching world to see? We have a song 
in this text before us this morning. King David was not the only songwriter in the Old Testament. In fact, the prophet Isaiah penned four songs. They're called servant songs. In Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 4, he sings of the servant Messiah who in tenderness will not break a bruised reed, who will not, who will not snuff out a, a faintly burning wick. Is that any of you? Do, do you feel like a faintly burning wick? Do you feel bruised? Um, this servant Messiah in chapter 42 will, will bring justice to the nations. There's a, another song in chapter 49, verses 1 to 6, where Isaiah sings of the servant Messiah who will bring the light of the gospel to the nations. Simeon actually sings these very lyrics over baby Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 32. There's another song in chapter 50 of Isaiah, verses 4 to 7, where the servant Messiah will give his back to those who will strike him, his beard to be plucked out with his face set like flint to go and suffer and die in Jerusalem. And we read of that in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And then here, the final of the four servant songs in chapter 52, 13 to 53, 12, the most glorious, yet the most tragic of all those songs where the servant Messiah will atone, he'll pay for the sins of his people. It, it is a, a Christmas song of, of shame. You look at the first three verses there, it's unbelievable. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Now, look, out of an abundance of caution, uh, we've been wearing masks this year. Uh, would, you, would you be willing to admit, though, that in the wearing of masks, it's, it's made it difficult in some ways to connect, to really see each other at times? And, and would, you, would you admit, like me, that maybe you've gone out uh, in public and you forgot to take your mask with you, and maybe you stepped into a public space uh, only to walk in and feel so exposed because you weren't wearing your mask, and, and there's a bit of shame that, that sets in. The reality is we, we've all been exposed and seeking a way to cover up and escape the shame ever since the garden where our first parents sewed together fig leaves. And when that didn't work out, uh, Adam blame shifted in an effort to shame shift. God, the woman you gave me got me into this mess. And, and so ever since then, we've been fashioning all kinds of masks. We cover up, we hide, we check out. Maybe, maybe we think we've gotten, you know, pretty good at it. Let me ask you, has your shame laid hold of you lately? How is your shame showing? Having a hard time covering it up sometimes? You know, we, we think at Christmas time that we're like the wise men who came looking for baby Jesus. In, in reality, we are lost in the darkness of our own stupefaction, of medication and obfuscation, and the baby Jesus had to come looking for you and me. You see, born to you, Christ Presbyterian Church, this day in the city of David is one who has come to seek and save that which is lost, according to Luke 19, verse 10. Are you ready to be found? Are you ready for this Christmas babe to come and seek you out? Maybe 2020 has sent you adrift. You, you didn't mean for it to happen. You, you just tried this or that to anesthetize the pain or adrenalize the, the boredom. And now you're living out the lyrics of that old hymn that was written about every single one of us, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We need to remember it was his initiative. It was he who came to earth to taste our sadness. Um, it is true, 
as the old carol says, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. My problem, left to myself, is that I am not meek of soul. I am full of self and full of sin and full of sugar and spice and everything nice. No, not really. The dear Christ had to come. He had to press into my shame, enter enter into the fallout of the fall, the kind of evil that sludges up the corridors of, of my heart and, and causes me to make excuses and I, I brutalize and I victimize and I, I detonate an explosion of rebellion against my creator. He had to come and feel uh, the fragility of my hopeless humanness. We, we do everything we can to sort of escape that sort of low-grade sense, that, that knowing sense of our fragility. But wasn't it just a few months ago that we heard the terrible news of a virus that was going to spread, and it had us scrambling and fighting in grocery store aisles, dare we admit it, over toilet paper? A bomb, just yesterday, is wickedly detonated in downtown Nashville, and many of us felt our fragility not only at the prospect of wicked things like that being done and, and people uh, being hurt, potentially losing their lives, but, but we even feel our fragility as the, as the cold void of our iPhones not connecting with Wi-Fi begins to set in. I mean, never mind the fact that, that I couldn't text someone if there was an emergency. I was planning on posting on Instagram yesterday this beautiful picture of this charcuterie tray that I had put together. It was incredible. And, and I couldn't wait to see all the likes I was going to get. And I just, I feel my fragility. Things could be taken away so easily, so, so quickly. German uh, nihilist existentialist philosopher Frederick Nietzsche. He lived from 1844 to 1900. He was the one whose story of the madman prophesied of the death of God, who bled to death under our lives. It was Nietzsche who called us to realize our evolutionary potential and rise and become the ubermensch or the overman and, and will ourselves to power. It, it, was, it was Nietzsche uh, who called philosophers in Europe to, to move beyond the need of God and raise and answer questions that Christianity could not when he said, Europe now philosophizes with hammer blows. Such boldness, such confidence in man's innate ability. One of the hardest hitting of those existentialist philosophers was uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who lived from 1905 to 80. Uh, he, he drew the conclusion uh, in his book, Nausea, uh, where in a, a world where there is no God, man is at best a useless passion. And he said, but, but he's condemned to be free, right? This, this freedom, of course, is bondage. And there, and there is this relentless sense that meaninglessness is a myth, right? We, we, we think everything that exists is meaningless and, and humanity doesn't matter, but even that becomes in its own strange way a quest for meaning because we were designed to matter. We were created for meaning. It was Albert Camus who lived from 1913 to 60 who followed in their train. He would later write, having moved beyond the Christian idea of God and the soul, that all that remains is history and power. 
And he even boldly writes, and I quote, Nietzsche has been overtaken. It is no longer with hammer blows, but with cannon shots that Europe philosophizes. Such boldness, such confidence. There is no meaning to our existence. And in fact, he said that if, if, if man uh, desires to be happy, uh, the last thing he should do is seek happiness. He, he will not live, man, uh, will not live if he thinks that there is actually meaning in life. Yet in the midst of this will to power, right, this, this sense of autonomy and just grabbing for power that, that a world without God uh, might understandably cause us to think is all that's left. In this will to power, the second person of the Godhead laid down power and came. Helpless little baby, the inescapable meaning of life wrapped in swaddling cloths precisely because you matter. That he was of marred appearance, as we see back in chapter 52, verse 14, with no form or majesty or beauty, as we read in 52, 53, verse 2, uh, does not only speak of the savaging that he would eventually endure in his scourging and crucifixion, but in the very fact that he took upon himself our common humanity, made like his brothers in every way, as we read in Hebrews 2, 17, he was unimpressive to the eye from the very outset. How could this possibly be a king? Yet he entered our shame, became a man of sorrows, acquainted himself with our grief in order to bring us to himself, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unmasked faces. Our shame and our guilt removed where we are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. But how, how could one so small and unimpressive do this? Well, this is not only a Christmas song of shame, it's a, a Christmas song here in Isaiah 53 of substitution. Here is the gospel of Isaiah. The old rugged cross of which we sing is as old as this prophecy. Don't ever see the manger scene without the words of Isaiah reminding you that not all would remain a silent night, a holy night. All is calm. All is bright. You see that babe drinking, suckling at his mother's breast in Bethlehem's stable that night did so in order that he might take up a cup none of us could bear in Gethsemane's garden. Look at verses 4 and following. That baby would bear our griefs. He would carry our sorrows, be stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded, become our iniquity. Then we see Isaiah set the scene here in verse 7. If you read a little further, the procession led away like the scapegoat of Leviticus 16, the, the cruel marking, mocking execution of a criminal in verse 8 and then verse 9 to the grave he went. And in all of this, in all of this, it was the will, verse 10, of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. I once had a woman tell me that she would never become a Christian because she would never follow a God who would let his son die. He didn't let his son die. Let this sink in. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. You don't understand Christmas or Christianity otherwise. 
He was born for this. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found by first letting the curse find him and crush him. Next Christmas, maybe we could mix into our night of lessons and carols, the old hymn, Man of Sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is a Christmas song of shame and of, of substitution of Jesus in our stead, doing for us what we could not have done for ourselves. But it's also a Christmas song of satisfaction. If, as verse 10 tells us, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, we can see why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, that Christ died for God and God was satisfied with Christ. Christ died to justify God in justifying you and me, to give God just reason for declaring you justified and righteous, totally accepted in his sight, simply because you trust in and, and you cling to Christ for salvation. Many verse 11, will be accounted righteous because of this suffering servant. Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Merry Christmas, believer in Jesus. Your father is satisfied with you and delights over you. In this glorious song of Isaiah, we see Jesus in the fullness of his healing power. Vaccines ward off viruses, and for that we can be grateful. However, ours is a fatal threefold sickness, according to, according to theologian Francis Turretin, who lived from 1623 to 87. We have a threefold sickness. We have a triple disease of ignorance and guilt and pollution, and for that we need what he called the munis triplex the threefold office of Christ, or what he called the threefold cure for our threefold sickness. The triple cure of Jesus as our prophet, our priest, and our king. He was, he was born for this. Turton says, the threefold misery of men introduced by sin, ignorance, guilt, and tyranny, and bondage by sin required this conjunction of a threefold office. Ignorance is healed by the prophetic office of Jesus, guilt by the priestly, the tyranny and corruption of sin by the kingly office. Prophetic light scatters the darkness of error. The merit of the priest takes away guilt and procures a reconciliation for us. The power of the king removes the bondage of sin and death. The prophet shows God to us. The priest leads us to God and the king joins us together and glorifies us with God. The prophet enlightens the mind by the spirit of illumination. The priest by the spirit of consolation tranquilizes the heart and conscience. Do any of you need your heart? tranquilized and set at ease and, and set at rest. Your high priest can do this. The king, Turretin says, by the spirit of sanctification, subdues rebellious affections, the kind that, that run rampant in my heart. I need this triple cure for my triple sickness. There's so much going on in that manger. No wonder 
Herod was troubled. We read of that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. And so were death and the devil troubled even, even more so. Herod was, was led to go on a search for Jesus that worship might serve as a strategic ploy to bring about the baby's death, but uh, government overreach is no match for the grand miracle of the incarnation. Herod nor Satan realized the babe had come on a search for them to overthrow their reign of terror, that by his own death, the death of death would lead us not to a trough, but to a throne where our worship of Jesus rises like sweet incense. This was no disconnected raid, but strategically coherent invasion, as C.S. Lewis says. So let me ask you, as we close, have, have heartache, fear, maybe, maybe loss eroded your faith this year? We, we live, as Lewis says, in the weeping valley, and some of you have done some weeping this year. But we are headed, he says, to the land of the Trinity. Let, let me ask you, could, could you try uh, to see 2020 in view of where you're going, the land of the Trinity? Can you see 2020 and, and 2021, which is upon us, in light of the fact that if the eternal Logos proposed to be incarnated for you, he will not fail to captivate you, even as he cleanses you from your sins. Dare we open gifts when so much evil is rampant and wickedness is around us? Dare we open presents? How can we not open this gift? Merry Christmas. Beloved, are, are you ready to find afresh the one who has found you? He's worth finding. For that babe in the manger scene was born for you, eternal king. There was something fierce laid in the manger that night. He came, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, to destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of us who through our fear of death were held in lifelong bondage. Indeed, Christ Presbyterian Church, born to you this day in the city of David, is a destroyer. Born to you is a deliverer. And with one tiny hand, he held to his mother Mary, and with the other, he had Satan by the throat. The gentle cooing of that Christmas child cannot hide his ferocity. His intention for your heart and mine, complete conquest and occupation. Indeed, we're meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. So choose joy, beloved, because you can. Gracious Father, we thank you for this gospel song penned by your prophet Isaiah. And we would ask now, O oh Father, in the strong name of this suffering servant, our Lord Jesus, that we would realize that he came on mission to find us. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, move in our hearts and let us be found afresh? For we ask it in his glorious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head and the Alpha and Omega. Amen. Let's continue to worship.